Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you can find your seat, please. If everyone can find their seat. That would be awesome. We're going get, to get rolling here, here soon. Um, if you're thankful to God for the rain this morning, please give the Lord a round of applause. <laughs> yeah. We just want to welcome you back to the second day of our, of our training. Uh, hopefully last night was a fulfilling night for you all, um, that it was um, a space of, of love, humility, challenge, and a space of growth for, for all of us. And today we're going to continue uh, that as well. And so just give yourselves a round of applause for coming back this morning. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a minister in a black church context. We do a lot of clapping and applause. So... <laughs> Uh, but I'm going to actually invite uh, Pastor Brad up, who's going to open us up in a word of prayer. And then after uh, Pastor Brad, you're going to uh, hear uh, from Date, and he's going to um, run the show for us today. All right? So here's Pastor Brad. Well, uh, it has been fun watching just even overnight how social media has blown up over the event. And I think as we designed last night, the hope uh, was to create some conversation that wouldn't normally occur. Uh, some of the conversation, I'm sure, uh, as you listened, uh, felt really good. And I imagine that was some of the conversation, I'm sure, as you heard, felt a little uncomfortable. Somebody asked me how I slept last night. I said, not very good. Uh, but that was the point, uh, to hear different perspectives. And so I'm just thankful for that. And I, I realized I got a text, in fact, for those of you who know Connie Clendenin, whom I love. She runs Valley Teen Ranch and is as spunky as they come. But she says, hey, you forgot to pray last night. And I realized I did forget to pray. I was so nervous, I totally forgot to pray. And so uh, I'm not going to forget this morning. So can we pray together? Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the privilege that we um, can assemble in a place like this, created in your image, as diverse as uh, can be represented even here. And God, we recognize your uh, design. We recognize your heart. That, Father, we would see uh, you in all of us. And, Father, I'm so thankful last night for good conversation, for sharpening conversation, for agreement, and even for disagreement, and for the freedom that we have in a place like this to pursue uh, the gospel, to pursue the unity that comes through Christ, to recognize that the hope that we have is that the gospel can take root in our heart, that we would truly not be slave-free, black, white, male, female, Jew, Gentile, but all one in Christ, and that we would see that union as an incredible blessing and freedom that we have. So as we enjoy some time now of interaction and training, as date leads us on our journey together, I just pray for eyes to see, for a continued humility to hear, and for the freedom and privilege we might have, even in this place, to begin to see what you would want us to be exposed to even here. And so we'll thank you for the hope that comes, that, Father, we are not defined by where we have been but we shape a new trajectory together as brothers and sisters who come together uh, in the name of Christ to be one. And so, Father, we'll thank you for the time, for the privilege to interact, and for the brothers and sisters that we're meeting here anew today. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, Brad. Good morning. Thank you all for coming back. So, got a little bit of a different setup this morning, right? 
we'll get into that in just a minute. What I'd like to do first is take a minute to just greet, let, let us greet each other, right? So we know who's here, you know who's next to you, perhaps who's around you. So um, I'd like to teach you a greeting. Um, so let's see if this works here. Here we go. This is a Zulu greeting, right? And the greeting that you give, right, is Saubona. Can you say that? Saubona, right. What do you think Saubona means? <laughs> Someone said, you're really good looking. <laughs> Maybe not quite, though. <laughs> but that's a good greeting, right? What do you think it means? Any guesses? Welcome. That's a good guess. Nice to meet you is a good guess. This is what Saubona means. I see you. And the purpose of that, right, is just to locate yourself in a space and to say, I see you. I see you. Really getting us to this space where we take seriously who's in the room. Right? And then there's a response, okay? So someone says, Saubona, and then here's the response, Sikona. And then Sikona means, then I am here. Hear the power in that? I see you, and then the response is, then I am here. And I can't think of a more powerful way for us to begin our morning than for us to greet each other in this way, right? You might do the name, hi, my name is, but then you say, Saubona, I see you. You're visible to me. And then if you're visible to me, then the other person's response is, then I'm here. And we, we root ourselves in this place. So can we just take five minutes to stand up and do this greeting with each other, and not just in the places around you. And I know we didn't leave aisles, so it's a little harder, but just can you give someone a Sawubona greeting and then the response of Sikona? All right. Thank you for doing that greeting. If we can grab our seats. So, I said last night that what we want to do after we set up some definitions is to really try and experiment, right? To try out, try on, really engage in this race work um, experientially. So, I just want to root us in kind of the definitions that we used yesterday. We talked about four dimensions of race, interpersonal, intrapersonal, structural, actually institutional, then structural. And it's those four that we call the system. That's, so when you hear someone refer to systemic racism or the system of race or the system at work, it's those four things kind of working all together, right? So if we think about the system, 
as a geometric shape, what do you think that shape would look like? Why? Whoever said it, just stand up real quick and tell me why. All right. So the premise, the hypothesis is that the system is designed as a triangle in which there is a top and there's a bottom, right? And then it widens as we get to the bottom. So here's what I'm going to do. This is where we're going to have the active participation, okay? In a minute, I'm going to ask you all to stand up. And then what I'm going to ask you to do is to locate yourself in the pyramid. What's the seat, do you, what's the seat that you think the system has designed for you as it relates to race? If we were having a different conversation, you might locate yourself somewhere else. But as it relates to race, where do you belong in the system? And I just want you to find your seat there, right? And then we're going to have a conversation about it. Is that fair? All right, so this is full participation. So let's be clear. The, the, the pyramid starts here. There's one seat right up here, right? And then we've got the last row that's, that's back there right in front of the sound booth. So that we have a group of chairs back there. That's not part of the system. All right. Uh, so let me see. Are there questions about what we're to do? Uh, there are lots of questions. Yes. <laughs> so the question is, the question is, do you mean what are we experiencing? What are we giving out? So I'm going to let you interpret some of this, right? I'm not going to interpret for you. But again, I'll, this, here are the instructions. You are to sit in the seat that the system has designed for you according to your race. According to your race, what's the seed in the system that is designed for you? It is ready made for you. The question is, is there a bottom and a top? I'll let you interpret that for yourself. All right, let's go. Let's now get up, find the seat that the system has designed for you. So, let's do something before we talk about this, right? This is the part where we're going to spend some time talking with each other and figuring out, like, what are the experiences that lead us to this place? But before we do that, will you just take a moment to remember where you started? So this morning, folks, you came in, and you may have been like, what's going on? But you chose a seat. Who were the folks sitting next to you this morning? And then now, if you could just take a moment and see what our initial configuration of the system of race looks like. 
Look around you. Look up front. Look behind you. So as we talk about this, what I want to do is I want us to be able to have a conversation about why we're here, why we are in the particular place that we're in. So I, I've got some mic helpers, right? So we're going to have, so we just need to talk into the mic as we're doing this. So I have one person on this side. I'm going to, Bryson, will you come here? And then Andy, will you go stand in the back? And so, as we talk, will you just find a mic that's close to you? We'll pass it to you. Just before you speak, if you'll just take a moment to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, okay? So let's talk about this. This is the system at play. This is the system at work in our midst. Let me make an initial observation. So, you know, when you set this thing up... Um, You always wonder, who's going to sit up here? <laughs> We're going to talk to Brian here in a minute. Actually, I heard him as we wa walking up. Well, let me get to that here in just a second. But you said, you're like, who's going to choose that first seat? Because everybody in their mind, I mean, first of all, it's just uncomfortable, right? <laughs> One seat up front, what does that mean? But here's what's interesting. Like when we first started off, there were people that chose to sit in the twos and the threes, and then there, there was a brother here, he sat in this first seat. But then when I gave the instructions, it was like, oh, I'm not sitting up there. <laughs> and then it was vacant for a while. And then you were with a friend, right? It, 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 oh, okay, so you all were walking, it's like, well, who's going to sit up there? Well, I'll sit up there. So, Brian, stand up. Why did you choose the top seat, the first seat in the system? Well, I think that one, I, obviously there's, there's a reason why, why it's here, but it, it, a couple of reasons. One, I'm, I'm white, uh, Norwegian, he doesn't, you, know, you can't get much further north than that. Um, two, uh, come from probably a fairly upper socioeconomic class not rich, but my parents, I didn't ever struggle for anything. Um, three, I, one of the things I don't think we've really talked about is like, I'm not overly obese, which um, I'm not skinny and in shape, but my brother is 350 pounds. And the things that he has to deal with because of uh, his weight um, are dis disadvantageous to some of the things and the ways that he's, he's had to live his life. Um, we talked about able-bodied, um, you know, and, and so there's sexuality, there's other things as well that are all, um, I, I guess society has set it up for success, like uh, prototypical, you know, it's not, it's not hard, as, as some of the other, other experiences. I have people in this room that have had much more challenging. I also do Big Brothers, Big Sisters. So you learned about that socioeconomic level in Fresno. 
um, a little bit more. So uh, I guess that's why. So how easy is it for you to be up here? I mean, in terms of the metaphorically speaking or of just today's practice? Oh, it's awkward. It's definitely awkward. Like, oh, yeah. No, it, it's, it's, it's definitely awkward. Like, and, and it's not fair. About? What's it, awkward about? That everybody's looking at you. <laughs> that everybody's, quite honestly, probably judging you. Like, there's, there's a, a take of, like, well, why did he sit there, you know? Um, and, and it's kind of one of the things that Andrew and I were like, well, somebody, again, like you said, somebody's, somebody's going to, somebody's got to. Um, and, and I think it, I guess, furthers the practice but, of, of this exercise. But, yeah, it's awkward. <laughs> it's really weird. Thank you. Stay, stay here for just a second, right? Just, just a second. Jeff, will you stand up for just, for just a second? First of all, tell us who you are. I said your first name, but just introduce yourself to us real quick. Jeff Harrington. So I want to ask you, Jeff, why the third row, mm -hmm. the fourth row, mm -hmm. and not the first row? Yeah. Um, up front, for sure, white male, tall, athletic, well-educated, um, not completely ugly, so you get to, <laughs> get to come up here. So, yeah. Um, the reason I didn't go to the front row is because I, 10 years ago I would have, but I've entered a demographic now that becomes tougher at, the, at my age with white hair, why I can be Yoda to a lot of people. Um, that's detrimental in other, in other people's viewpoint that I'm past my prime. Uh, I've actually heard that, so that's why I'd put myself here and not in the front row. So I want you to hear that. When the system kind of plays out, we have a particular view of things, right? And so what Jeff is telling us here is like, yeah, I'm up here, but then there are some vulnerabilities about me too. And we heard the same thing from Brian, right? And part of what I want us to understand is the system for every single one of us. Black, white, brown, yellow. Whatever your race or ethnicity is. The system is dehumanizing to all of us. So this is what I want you to understand. No one locates himself or herself outside of the system. And it dehumanizes all of us. Those in front and those in back. So we need to understand that. Now it's not equal. And we're going to get into that. But that's a really important thing. Just... Before you sit down, you're standing here. You're looking back at this group of folks. Just would you describe your feelings associated with that? Um, hmm. Well, a lot of you, some, I look around and know what I've been about the last 20 years. So racial reconciliation has been a call on my life. Um, So it's just a vivid reminder. Uh, there's a lot of steps to take. Uh, this is a great one, but it'll be useless if nothing happens after we're done. So that's what. Thank you. Thank you. 
Andy, did you have a comment? Someone in the back? Sure. Tell us your name. Elliot Stevenson. Elliot Stevenson. So, Elliot, first of all, can I ask you a question? You sure can. You're not even sitting. That's right. Because when you said, um, where's my place in the system, I, it, it automatically went to my mind, and the system been against me all my life. And so I, um, I'm, I'm still in an area where where do I fit in that, you know? And, and not blaming nobody, but as I deal with different people throughout the years, I, I find out that I do, I work in a God system, which is against the system of this world, you know? And so I have to constantly keep battling with that recognizing who I am. And so now it's like, wow, with this going on now, you know, I've learned, my grandfather taught me when we were younger is that you're not who people say you are, but you are who God says you are. And that's been a constant uh, reminder to me as I deal with people from all walks of life nowadays. And so I, when it comes to the system, and I've seen a lot in my years, and I've learned to forgive, I learned to um, keep striving, and most of all, I've learned to love with agape love instead of just a regular love like people deal with nowadays. So Elliot, I wonder if you could tell us, you started off by saying that I've been battling the system my whole life. Tell us, what are some of the things that the system has done to you? Well, from elementary school, they told me I, I, sh I could never be nothing but a janitor. I can remember that. I can remember having to cross the street when white people come on the sidewalk and hold my head down, not to look at white women, period, or getting, you know, and I can remember. Hold on, oh. hold on, hold on. Because we want to see you, right? We want to see you. Why can't you, why couldn't you look at white women? Uh, it was a matter of life and death, they told me, you know, you don't want people to think that you oogling a white woman or have an interest in a white woman or, or you know, and um, some of my family members uh, witnessed some of my uncles being hung before and, and so we didn't want to take a chance of that happening to us. So one of the things that you were taught very early in life is that if you're walking down the street and a white woman is coming towards you. Put your head down. Say it in the mic, please. Put your head down and don't look at her. I just want us to understand for a moment that message. A white woman walks towards you, put your head down. And try to understand how that is connected to the message for those of us who are people of faith in the church, talk about dignity and being made in the image of God. How else has the system affected you? Well, moving up to high school, 
I had an experience with the law that I never forget. Uh, I graduated in 75, and on my 18th birthday, I got a whooping like Rodney King got, but the only reason it wasn't publicized, they didn't have videotape back then. And, and um, Can you describe I, that for us, please? Yeah, I was in, it was in Oakland, California. I was at the Eastmont Mall. I was, me and a high school buddy, it's a two-story mall. He was downstairs, I was upstairs, and I was eating some french fries. He go, Elliot, throw me a french fry, so I threw him a french fry. And uh, one of the security guards said, hey, stop throwing them french fries down there. I said, I'm sorry, man, I just, I just threw, he asked, he said he was hungry, so I threw him a fry. And, and uh, so the security guard came upstairs and said, hey, you need to get out of here because you're being rebellious. And I said, well, this is a public place. I don't have to leave, do I? He go, yeah. And so he, he pushed me and... Well, I was 18 at the time, kind of stupid, so I, <laughs> so I pushed back, and that was the wrong thing to do, and next thing I know, I was getting uh, whooped up pretty bad. Um, actually, I tell people, they, when they finish beating on me, I look like Tarzan, because they tore all my clothes off of me and stuff, and even when I looked in the mirror, I couldn't... You know, I was like, man, that's me in the mirror. And it made the papers and stuff, but and the only reason that it did at that time was because uh, I was a quarterback for Laney College. I was, that's, that's where I was. Uh, and so that was the reason my coach, he, you know, he made an uproar about it. And so, but that had a profound effect. But then it made me realize, hey, I don't want to fight these dudes no more. I want them on my side, you know, because I respect the police and I respect authority. But at that moment when I decided to push back after he pushed me, I didn't respect. And, and you have to realize I came from, from, he, from here in Fresno. It was pretty calm. But when I moved to Oakland, you know, that's where the Black Panthers was. And I was a young coming up man, and so it was Huey P. Newton and the Black Panthers, and they was hollering black power and stuff. And then it was Martin Luther King, and he was hollering peace. But since Martin Luther King was down south and Huey P. Newton, the average black guy was like, hey, we going with this dude because he's showing us some power and stuff. Uh, but thank God for my grandfather. He came all the way from Fresno and said, look, man. That's not who you are. You're a child of God. And he kept reiterating that in me. It's not because of your skin, and it's not that you need to be letting people know about your black power. You need to let people see the Christ-likeness in you. And my grandfather was very adamant at that. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why I um, chose not to be angry about that. And so to the, today, you know, you know, we I'm, I'm hearing us talk about this race relationship. And I don't some of you might know Malcolm Henry LeMay. He's a World War Two vet. I mean, a, a Korean War vet, Purple Heart. And he's singing around town here. He told me, he said, Elliot, he said, let me tell you something, because I was kind of angry at the time. He said, well, man, you have to realize something that. Go all the way back to slavery days. 
And in slavery time, the majority vote still ruled. And so he said, and it took the majority vote to free the slaves. And I go, yeah, I can hear you. Well, what that's supposed to mean? He said, Elliot, we didn't get the vote. So it took the majority of white men to vote to free us. And he said, don't make them feel too good about it, but it was the majority of white men, the majority of white men that believed in God. They feared God and they did what God told them to do. And I see the same thing happening today. See, we fighting this battle that's going on and, and a lot of stuff is going on in, in our communities and stuff, but it's the men and women that fear God and choose to be obedient to God that's going to help take this over and not allow this evil to overtake us. Thanks, Ellie. Thank you. Can we pass the mic? I heard we need to hear from a woman. I'd love to. Jen? No? Stand up for us. Stand up. Who, tell, us, tell us your name first. My, I'm having a very hard time. It's okay. Take your time. My name is Linda Bitcon. I'm Mexican by birth and ethnicity. I'm American by naturalization. I came to the States when I was 10 years old. I didn't speak a word of English. I never suffered beatings or anything like that from anybody. But just the ridicule from the children, from the neighbors, my home situation. God has just been a constant presence in my life. <laughs> I couldn't go to college because I was an illegal alien. I had a scholarship to go to school as a nurse, my passion as a child. I achieved that goal at the age of 40 years old. I am not an oppressed person by any means. God is my king and my ever unrelenting hope and strength. And because of him, I don't have to sit back here. I can sit somewhere in the middle, but society continues to place us in the back. And I'm so thankful that I serve a loving and gracious God, and I have the support of my Christian community that I'm, I'm broken for the things that continue to go on because of racism, but I'm hopeful 
that we as a Christian community can change that. Praise God. Praise God. So another person from the back, tell us who you are. Peace of God be upon all of you. My name is Reza, and me being who I am, my ethnicity, and my religion keeps me outside of this triangle. Uh, even today, sometimes it's a little bit difficult in the language that we use. It's interesting, uh, I'm going to speak not just about Muslims, but about Middle Eastern immigrants, uh, and included in there also Indian, Pakistani, other Desi immigrants. So Reza, first tell us, what is your ethnicity? Uh, so I'm Iranian-American. I'm from, I was born and raised in America, and, but that hasn't really mattered much to the people I've met, uh, because they've seen me as different. So, something interesting about the immigrant community, the Middle Eastern immigrant community, interestingly, everything that we've done, or our people have done, should have brought us pretty far up front. It's one of the most educated groups in the country. Even financially, they do pretty well. Um, they, in many polls, They've shown that even they're more proud to be American than many Americans are. And the list goes on. But because of politics, because of the world situation, and because of a lot of evil people that have used my religion to do a lot of evil things, we've been kept outside of the system. No matter how educated we get, no matter how economically advanced we become, no matter how active we become, no matter how united we become with many different groups, we're not able to move forward. And I would like to say, too, that it's not just since 9-11. A lot of people say, well, since 9-11, Muslims have had it bad. But I ask, how many of you have seen a Muslim up there or at the front, even prior to 9-11. A lot of us have Muslim doctors. A lot of us have even Middle Eastern doctors that are not Muslim, professors, all those things that say that they should be up there. But when the discussion happens, when the decision-making happens, when the planning for our future and our cities and our communities happens, we're not invited to the table. As a matter of fact, when we do come to the table, it doesn't matter but white, brown, black, yellow, nobody accepts us at the table. And that's a little bit difficult to deal with. It's hard. It's painful because, I mean, I don't see myself as any different from any of you. I'm happy to be here with so many people of different races, ethnicities, religions, it doesn't matter to me, but sometimes it's a little bit tiring trying to just fight to be in the same space that everybody else is afforded to be in. So date, that's my, why I'm out here. And I actually am standing outside accidentally. I didn't make it to my seat in time. <laughs> but then I, I thought about it and I thought this was the best place for me to be 
because I'm not part of the system and it doesn't matter how educated I become, even how wealthy I become or how many ties I make, still I'm going to be right here. Reza. Can you just describe specifically what is it like to be Muslim in a predominantly Christian community? Well, it's not all bad. Um, we have wonderful friends of many different faiths, but the language, the language that's used many times is difficult. Because I too feel that God has created each and every one of us with dignity. Um, it says in the Quran, which is our holy book, it says that Allah has granted each and every human being or child of Adam with dignity. So it's not for the government to give us dignity. It's not for a group to give us dignity. It's not for a church to give us dignity. God granted that upon all of us. However, some of the language that is used, uh, some of the discussions that I've been involved with, some of the things that I've heard many people say, is that I somehow am not entitled to that dignity that God gave me. Somehow my lack of accepting what the majority believes strips me of my dignity. Sometimes when I hear the talk, uh, I know I'm in a church today, so I understand that I'm going to hear um, a lot about the body of Christ, the work of Christ. I don't disagree with it. Uh, I think it's good. I don't expect anybody to change who they are, anybody to change what they believe, or even try to hide what they believe and water it down. But in an outside realm, in the community, in society, in schools, that kind of language alienates me. I chose to come in today with a couple of my friends, and we didn't feel uncomfortable. It's awesome. As a matter of fact, just so you know, I work right across the street at the Islamic Cultural Center. This is my first time walking into this church. That's not good for me as a neighbor even, that I haven't come across the street and knocked on the door and said, hey, Pastor Brad, can I come in? You know, I, I, I take the responsibility for that. But outside, when we're in school, when we're in work, when we're on the streets, when we're doing um, work for the society, when we're involved in movements, then that's where language of that sort alienates me. It keeps me from being able to be a part of this movement, and it keeps me a little less dignified, because somehow I don't share in that dignity that God has granted upon me and everyone else here. Thanks, Reza. Dave. Yes. A sister back here who wants to come lift on. Up something as well. Talk to us. Okay, so. Um, who are you? My name is Patricia. Um, I'm currently at Fresno State. I'm from Stockton, California. And so, like, oh. <laughs> so, like, my first experiences started in high school. Um, I noticed when I was in high school, I was in the magnet program slash STEM. And the first thing I noticed is that I was, not only was I the only black person in my classes, I was the only black female. 
And so like everybody was looking at me like, oh, what is she doing here? And at first I used to get sad, but then I noticed that like I had to set an example for like the rest of my people. And so like throughout high school. Can you hold it? Just, just hold on just a second, right? I'm sorry to cut you off, but something that you said that I just is really important. You just said, I feel like I have to set an example for my people. So I want to just see a show of hands. How many of us in this room feel like we have to set an example for our people? Okay, hands down. I'm, I'm going to get back to you, sister. How many of us in this room, when we were talking, have the notion is that we have to speak for our whole group? Just look around for a second. If you're in a conversation, it's expected that you represent your entire group and you speak for your entire group. And then of those hands, it's a great question. How many of us feel like we could even start to speak for the group? <laughs> there are people raising their hands over there. Y'all lie. <laughs> so it's not universal, but there is this notion sometimes when you're targeted, when you're, part, when you're a person of color, that all of a sudden you bear the brunt and the burden, not just of whatever else is happening, but then the burden of your whole race, your whole group. It's tough to carry. All right, keep going, sister. Talk to us. Okay, so, um, yeah, throughout high school, I was in a magnet program, and I maintained a 4.0, and I was also an active member of my Black Student Union, and I, I was in an office of each year, and then, like, I noticed the people around me, that they would be like, oh, you're not black, you're whitewashed. And I'm like, what is that supposed to mean? Because we all speak the same language. And just because I don't meet to your, like, expectations of black people doesn't mean that I'm not black. Because I was raised to be black and proud of it. Like, my dad is very militant. And so <laughs> he told me about like all the history and stuff and don't forget, to, don't forget where you came from and where your ancestors came from. And he was saying that like, we didn't, we didn't choose to come here, we were forced here by slavery. So that wasn't our choice. But um, so yeah, I grew up with that, what he was saying like you're whitewashed and I'm like, no, I'm black and proud of it. What does it mean to be whitewashed? Um, well, well, from what the people were telling me? Yeah, what do you think it means to be whitewashed? What were they saying to you? Basically, like, the way I spoke, and um, they can tell that I was, like, more educated than they would expect, and I have, like, proper manners, and I don't really, like, put myself out there and just do like nonchalant things. I guess they just assumed that I was more like proper. Again, remember we talked about internalized racism? You start to take in the messages, Thank you. right? 
So apparently, you're not really black if you speak a particular way, if you're educated, perhaps if you live on a certain part of town. Do you understand how this stuff works, like how insidious it is? So then there's something that happens within the African-American community to each other, and then there's stuff that happens outside. Like this thing about race, it's like continual bombardment, right? Did you want to finish? Yeah, so like my, <laughs> my dream school was to like go to UCLA, so that's why I kept my grades up, and I did a lot of community service, and I did a lot of sports. And so my, during, my senior, during my junior year, I came to Fresno State for a Black Student Union Convention, and some lady from the Smith's Camps Honors Program came to speak to us, and she was all like, you guys should apply for this program. We're diverse and such and such. So I was like, I meet the requirements for the program. So I applied for it my senior year. And then they sent me a letter in the mail saying like, oh, you're on the waiting list. So I was like, okay, hopefully I get in. And I kept calling to see where I was at and they were basically like blowing me off. And then um, I got another letter in the mail saying that I was in the top 5% of my high school, so I could go to any UC I want to in California. And when I got the letters back from the UCs that I applied to, including UCLA, I didn't get into any of them, and I was really hurt. And that's how I noticed how the system worked out, because no matter like how, how hard you try, you just don't meet the criteria. You could like, like, do just as good as anybody, anybody else, but you still don't get to get in. And so um, I went to the actual Smith's Camp's office during my um, orientation day to talk to the coordinator, because I, I really wanted to get in the program. Like, what's the issue? And so I was sitting in the lobby. She was like, oh, you can look through our little yearbook while you wait to speak to the person. And I was looking through the yearbook, and there was like no diversity. And when they, came, when they came to speak to us about talking about diversity at the Black Student Union Convention, I'm like, where is it at? Because it's predominantly white. And that's how I noticed that like, I was like out of the system. Like, I, they're like, oh, you meet all the requirements, but you just can't get in, supposedly. Like, oh, we, um, we already fulfilled the amount of people to get into the program. So like, I'm just like in the middle. Like, you meet the requirements, but you just didn't get in. So that's how the system worked. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Let's get, let's come over here. Hello, my name is Audrey. Um, I'm gonna kind of keep this a little bit short. Um, do we have any like biracial people in here? People of more than one, right? Okay. Okay, good. Um, I'm half Mexican and half white, um, so I live with my dad's side of the family, um, and they're like straight from Mexico. Um, and then I had my mom's side of the family who are a little bit, um, or for a little bit, they're from like Oklahoma, you know. So we had um, <laughs> it was very, very diverse. Um, I don't look like the ideal Hispanic female, right? I'm like complected. Um, and so for a lot of people I went to school with, um, they 
sorry, this is hard. Um, <laughs> there was nowhere I could really fit in in the school system because if I tried to hang out with the Hispanic kids, um, they'd be like, well, you're really white. You know, you don't really like identify with us. And I'd go and I'd try to hang out with, you know, the white kids and they'd be like, well, um, no, because we totally saw your parents in the van they picked you up in, you know? <laughs> it's, it's um, and that's been a struggle for me going all the way up, you know, through high school. I just graduated in 2014. I'm from Clovis High. Um, I got my first job in retail. Um, does anybody work in retail or have any experiences? So you know that it's not exactly the most racially accepting of places. I see you, yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, when I first put in my application to this place, um, you know, there's, um, there's a checklist that you have to meet talking about, you know, your sexual orientation, your gender, your, um, your race, your ethnicity. Um, there was a Hispanic box and there was a white box and there was no, like, in the middle option. There was no, you know, I had to identify by just one. And that has been a struggle for me always. Um, and, hold on, sorry. <sighs> um, thank you. Um, and, you know, I had to tell them that I was, um, I was white because it, it just seemed as though I would have been a little bit ostracized had I been open that I identify as a Hispanic female, I identify as more than one something, you know. Um, so I identified as that, and they have... Um, this process in the retail system, and it's called LP, or loss prevention. Um, and they thought, you know, because I was white, they would be able to talk to me about certain prejudices that they had and certain people and ideals that they could, you know, say, you know, these people steal. They said that, um, like, black females and Hispanic females are more likely to um, steal from stores based on their numbers. Um, mind you, they didn't know that I was Hispanic, so they thought it was okay to just tell me all of this. Um, and they would be like, well, you should go follow the people that come into the stores. You should, you know, it, it, was, it was ridiculous. It was absolutely um, just so disgusting to base, you know, these horrible things off of a profile just of how a person looks. And um, I don't know if they know that I'm Hispanic to this day, um, but I got sick of it. And I put in my two weeks notice yesterday because. So sister, tell me your name again. Audrey. Uh, <laughs> worked, past tense, worked. So I wanna um, thank you for sharing that. Um, If you can, can you describe what the cost has been to you to try and choose between one or the other? What's it done to you inside? You know, it wasn't just um, school that would make me choose one or the other. It was family. I have um, divorced parents. I come from a divorced home. And... Um, they would always have a strong preference towards their race and kind of demean me because I, um, you know, was not fully of them. Uh, I have my Hispanic family who um, 
she told me, my grandma, I live with my grandma, she told me, you will never know the sort of prejudice that we have faced because you look white. She doesn't understand the struggle that I've had to face from not one community, but both. I have my white family who told me, actually they didn't tell me anything, they try and speak Spanish to me thinking that I'm gonna understand because I'm half Mexican. Um, my boyfriend here, who's full Mexican, uh, we've been together about a year now, um, they refused to speak to him in anything but Spanish. We don't speak a lick of Spanish, all right? <laughs> like, <laughs> it was just, it's, um, you know, they say they're joking, but it only, t it can only go so far when you've struggled with it for your entire life, not being able to call one place home, not being able to, you know, sit and say, I am of this Orient, this is the place that I can call home. You know, you, that it's an identification problem, really, because you can never really, I mean, settle with one place the way a lot of people can. Thank you. Can I see a show of hands again? She asked, so you can sit. Uh, um, do you have more to say? No. Okay. no. Can I see a show of hands? Who, who in here identifies as biracial or multiracial? Right, keep those hands up. Of those who identify as biracial or multiracial, have you ever been called mixed or mutt? Stand up. Tell us who you are, what you're, how you identify, and then just, I want to hear from you, like, what is it like to be called mixed or mutt? Uh, my name is Sherry, and my grandfather on my dad's side is actually Filipino, and came over from the islands, picked pineapples in Hawaii, and made his way to the mainland. And so something that I find myself being asked often is, so what are you anyway? And, um, and so when I tell the story, uh, a lot of people ask, so can you, can you speak, what, what is the Filipino language anyway? It it's like starts with a T, it, yeah, it's Tagalog. And no, I don't speak Philippine, I don't speak Tagalog. And the interesting thing is when my grandfather came over and started having a family, he was very intentional that his family was gonna be American. And so my dad and his siblings were raised to be Americans, has no concept of the Filipino national pride. And he had to be intentional as he grew up and became an adult to figure out what does it mean to be Filipino. Uh, and so he learned to, to cook and all that kind of thing. And so as he had grandchildren, um, he is now, um, he is learning his heritage as a senior citizen because he didn't learn it from his dad. And so that has been my experience now as an adult with my own kids, that I didn't have a concept of what my heritage was growing up. And so it's, I kind of feel like I'm behind the ball. Um, but when people ask me, so what are you anyway? I have always identified with being white, although I knew that I had this Filipino heritage that I knew nothing about. And so it was this invisible background to me that was back there somewhere, but I couldn't identify with it. And so that has been something that I'm seeking to understand. And so when I meet Filipinos that know and understand what it means to be a Filipino, I covet that. And so it's, it's, 
it's something that I wish I had, but I can't identify to. And so I'm, I'm thankful for my dad that he's now trying to learn and understand and pass down those traditions. I mean, just something like being able to make chicken adobo that I, I can't do myself, but he's trying to teach me how to do. So it's those things that I enjoy doing with him and being able to pass down. So. Thank you. you. You all get that the dominant narrative, yes, give her a hand. The dominant narrative tries to fit us into easy categories for us to understand. And the complexity of race and ethnicity is we don't fit into those categories anymore, right? My wife is Egyptian. So our daughters, right, part Cambodian and part Egyptian. And so when my daughter asked me, she's filling out the form at school, and she says, what do I fill out? There's not, you know what I told her? You felt both. And she was like, but the teacher said one. You know what I said? I don't care what the teacher says. <laughs> I mean it. Like, identity is important. And I told her, if the teacher asks you why you did that, you tell her, I'm multiracial and I'm multiethnic, and I will not choose between one. Part of what we're doing around this is continuing to find ways to assert our identity because that's the first step, right? We have a comment here, so let's get the mic there, and then I see the comment there. Yep. Hi. My name is Janice, and I'm a Japanese-American, uh, born and raised here, and my parents also were born in America but my grandparents were born in Japan. But during World War II, my parents, when they were t uh, actually adults, and my grandparents lived here in California, because of the Japanese, they bombed Pearl Harbor. Then after that, they felt like all the Japanese in California were the enemies of America, so they put my parents in camps. They called them camps because it wasn't, con well, I don't know if it was a concentration camp, but it was very similar. They went to Arizona and in the desert. I mean, my parents were living in Gilroy and Watsonville and uh, went to the desert and basically lived in uh, barracks. And they, my father is now 94 and he tells me the story. My parents never told us about what happened to them when they were growing up, when we were growing up, because we were very isolated as a family and my parents did not trust, they didn't trust white people. So we didn't, I didn't have any white friends that came to my house except for one. And we, she never spent the night at her house. And I had always went to her house, but she was not invited to my house. And we only had Japanese relatives that would visit us. So I grew up in a very isolated community. And, uh, but I was taught to be American. And Japanese was kind of not even existed when I grew up. I grew up in a Mexican culture, white culture, a little bit of mix of Japanese. And I never saw any black people ever. <laughs> so um, 
I grew up very shy because I was so isolated. I didn't know who I really was. And I thought I was white. <laughs> I mean, because you, I, I didn't learn Japanese. My parents didn't want us to be discriminated against. So I didn't really understand until I came to Fresno that there was other races and communities here. And, and my father, of course, was very bitter towards the U.S. government because of, they took away their house. My parents had a house. They took away their farms. I mean, two years in camp. And then they couldn't even go back to California. They had to live other places. My, my father was forced to join the U.S. Army after the war. So my dad is very bitter <laughs> towards the government, not American people, but just the government itself. And so I had to learn myself not to be prejudiced. And I never grew up that, I mean, I as an adult have not, but my dad was very bitter for a long time. And we were always taught as Japanese Americans to never complain, ever, about whatever happened. And so it's buried. We never, no one ever talks about it. We never talked about it. My family, we, they never talked about it. So I'm learning even now what my parents went through because my dad's 94 years old and he's finally talking about what happened to him. And it really changed his, his whole life. And he told me that when he came back to California that he experienced a lot of um, discrimination. He said he wanted, to, he wanted to eat in a restaurant and they did not serve him. And he said... I'm going to sit here all day until they serve me. Day, I mean, he stayed until they closed. And then one time he wanted to use the public restroom. And sorry, it's only for white people. <laughs> I'm like, white people? <laughs> so he, he's, he was so stubborn. He said, you know what? I'm, I can't hold it. I'm going to just go right here if you don't let me go. I mean, what else am I going to do? So just a few of those things I'm learning now as an adult, and um, yeah, so I don't even know what I am. A lot of times I think I'm white, because I, think I couldn't identify to be Japanese, I, I'm not any other, so it was very hard for me to know where I really fit. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's just kind of, I'm still learning. So. Thank you. I'm going to come to you in just a minute, sister. Um, will you stand for just a minute? Will you stand? This isn't the pain that you expressed, but I have to tell you, to hear another Asian say, I don't know who I am, is really painful for me because it reminds me of all the ways that I've assimilated and I have sought identity and I've been trapped 
in two different worlds. I want to say to you, my sister, Janice, I want you to hear me to say, keep searching for your identity. There are people here who will stand by you. I stand with you. You don't have to stay in the place of not knowing who you are. Keep searching and keep fighting for that. Whether you know it or not, my freedom is bound up in your freedom. As you unlock it, you unlock it for others of us who are searching. Keep searching and fighting, my sister. We do this together. Is it on? Can you hear me? Okay. Hi, my name is Regina, and I'm born and raised here in Fresno on the south side, which is a little town. What? Oh, sorry. Um, I'm born and raised here in Fresno. I come from South Fresno, which is a little town called Kalawa. It's really a food town. <laughs> so I'm from there. I raised chickens and rabbits with my grandmother. And um, we were taught to just stay with the family. You didn't bring in different races. We didn't trust white people. We didn't trust the black people. So we just stayed with just the Latin community. Uh, we kind of didn't trust our own people either. So you just pretty much just stayed with the family. That's how I was raised as a child. That's my grades, my elementary years. As I became a teenager, my mother, I went to live with my mother, my mother, and her husband bought a house on Gettysburg and Willow. So now I'm in Clovis for my teenage years. I'm Mexican. There's only one other Mexican family there, and Clovis doesn't want us. So my teenage years, needless to say, were very hard. I didn't get to know a lot of people in Clovis because of that, because of my skin color. My mother's a nurse. Um, my, my stepfather is a jet engine mechanic for the Air Force. He's a Vietnam veteran as well. But we're considered middle, middle class. They made good money. But even though the color of our skin still told white people that we were lower class, although my parents made enough money. I went to McLean, I graduated there, I got married and went to LA. Now, when I went to LA, I still had it in my head that people were still gonna be prejudiced against me because I'm Mexican. So I went to Los Angeles with a vengeance that I was gonna do exactly like the white people did. I'm gonna get a good job, I'm gonna get my degree, I'm gonna get a house, and I'm gonna have kids, and they're gonna be great. And that is what I did. Over the last 20 years, I flip properties every two years. I have my bachelor's in computer science. I have two kids. I have one in the Army studying for special forces. My daughter's in Long Beach. She just opened up a juice store, so she does cold-pressed juices. So I bought properties. I did it again. I said, I'm going into the white community. I know you don't want me because I'm a single. Now I'm a single Latin with two kids and I'm coming into your community because I'm an IT, I'm making really good money, I'm making as much money as a manager or I'm making as much money as a director because back then IT, we were just making all kinds of money. So I moved into 
Westchester and Playa del Rey, and those were the only places that I would buy my properties. So if you know Los Angeles, those homes are 600,000 600, to a million dollars up. And then I said, well, guess what? I'm putting my kids in your private school. So I put them in the most affluent private school there in the white community. Um, there was only one other Latin family in there. They were Colombian, and their parents, one was a lawyer and one was a doctor. So myself and my kids, we really stood out, and people just couldn't understand how is she doing this. Well, I did it, because I had a bachelor's. I was in IT. God help me, I don't know. I didn't do it. I think he's been doing it for me because I didn't know to really pick that career. All I knew is that people said you had to be a mathematician. So I said, okay, I want to be a computer programmer because I just want to know if I'm smart. That's the real reason why I did it, so I did it. I stayed in that career. I'm a project manager of software development now. I am skilled enough to run an entire company. I know an entire company. I know all the manufacturing. You could just put me in there. My salary is up at $100,000 now. So that's LA. So I decided to come back to Fresno. The reason why I'm here is because I, I want to know how Fresno has changed. I left Fresno, and I was really nervous about coming back because I was hoping that it had changed. I tell people in Los Angeles, you don't understand Fresno. My first job was at a bank. I worked at Guarantee Savings. They separated our lunches so that we wouldn't speak Spanish to each other. Um, so we were really held back here. And I tell people, I said, there's only three classes in Fresno. There's two, the haves and the have-nots, but there's three. You either live on the south side, you live on the west side, or you live on the north side. I said, and based on where you live, I said, in Fresno, they know how successful you are. So if you say south side, they know you're probably ghetto Mexican. If you say west side, you're ghetto black. If you say north, you're probably white and have a good job and you have education and you have, you know, you're making it. I said, I'm hoping that when I go back, um, Fresno isn't like that anymore because if you'd asked me, sit where you think you belong, I'd be way up there. So hold up, hold up, hold up. So why did you choose there? No, I chose over there. Where? Right there where my, see my glasses on the chair that's on the outside? So why? Because I always choose the end seats. Um, if I can't get to the front, I'll choose an end seat. I don't like to be boxed in, and I don't want people coming in front of me. So when I looked at how you did your seating, I was like, oh, no. So I was really walking over there. Then I saw that seat. I said, cool, right there. I can see. I can listen. I can pay attention. And I don't have to worry about people walking in front of me. And if I want to leave, I'll, I'll leave. But, so I, I, but as a Mexican-American, where does the system place you? Um, you know, what I experienced in Los Angeles, being in IT, there was only two cultures. It was black and white. The Asians weren't there. You're the, the other Indian people, they weren't there yet. So um, 
I migrated more towards black. They were more accepting of my culture than the white people were. Um, the white women wouldn't accept me because I made more money than they did. And they couldn't understand how does this Mexican girl come in and work in our company and you start off at the same salary that I'm getting paid and they're managers. It's IT, it's the career that I picked. So I have, um, I probably have five Latin friends. All my friends are black. They've been black for the last 20 years and I thank this race for being so accepting because white people wouldn't accept me. Thank you. Here's what I'd like to do. I know there are more hands and, and we will do this, but I'd like to kind of group us in groups of three and four, right? And then we can come back and do some closing comments from the group. Three and four, will you just take a moment to talk about what did you see in this pyramid, right? What did you see going on here? So let's take, let's take five to seven minutes to do that. All right, all right. Awesome, we hope that you all were able to connect with some folks. We're actually gonna bring it back together for one more piece and we're gonna end in just a few minutes so we can just gather back. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this high school style. Clap once if you can hear my voice. Clap twice if you can hear my voice. Clap three times. All right, now spin around and do the splits. So, um, <laughs> so if, you, if, if you can gather back in, and we're going to conclude just with some next steps, and then we're going to bring back Date, uh, who's going to uh, bring us in conclusion, and we're going to close in a time of a prayer with one another as well. All right, so if you can bring it back in for, for one last piece. Yeah. All right. So I'm gonna do it one more time, just just so we can just so we can get uh, the, the the volume down. Clap once if you can hear my voice. All right. I'm just gonna do it that once. We just need the volume to the dip just a little bit. All right. So uh, so we hope and we pray that the last two days have been impactful for each one of us. Uh, I know it's been impactful for me in my own journey and process around the issue of, uh, of race on a personal level uh, as well as on a structural level and what it means uh, for our city as, as a whole, right? Uh, so as you know, uh, since we have this particular piece here at the well, we also are doing uh, some of these trainings in smaller settings uh, in other congregations uh, in other neighborhoods and even people who want to do them just within their houses. So we're going to issue a challenge to you all. Right. So uh, so if you're not a member of the well, only because uh, we've had this first piece here at the well, but you would like to have this conversation in your own church for other churches who are here, people of other uh, houses of faith, or if you would like to have one in your house. And this is even for folks of the well, if you'd like to have one in your neighborhood. The challenge is, is to text me right now with your name and you have, we'll have your number because you're texting me, and we'll follow up with you and talk about what that, and think with you about what that can look like in your own context, in your own context. So I know you all don't have my number, so my number is, if you are interested, and I'm gonna read them, so I want you to text me, right? Because I wanna see how many folks pull this in right now. 
My number is 559-994-1028. So, excuse me? Oh, it's in the handout too. Yeah, see, the professor's always got the packets on deck to give it, <laughs> to get the information. So if you're interested, shoot me a text right now, and I'm just going to see kind of how many I get right now, see how many folks are interested. Is that all right? We'll do a little experiment. And I got a good data plan, so I'm all right. You can keep texting me. <laughs> all right, I got one so far. That was a quick text. Man, I got two. Okay. Who has three? Who can make it three? Do I got we hear three. three? Do we hear I got three? Four. I How got about five. a four? Do we I hear four? Six. Is there four? I got seven. Seven. Do we have eight? Eight. Eight. Is there eight? Is there an eight out there? Eight. I got eight. eight. We got an eight. Somebody here is calling me. I got to reject it. I got, <laughs> I got 11. <laughs> Sorry, Minister Miller. I know you're in here someplace. Let's see if we've got 15 people. 15. Do we have 15? 15. All right. Keep them coming. I got about 13. They're stopping. I got 13. Can we get to 15? Number 994-1028. Now, don't be prank calling me in the middle of the night either. All right? <laughs> can we get to 15? 15, 15. We got to 14. We got to 15. Oh, can we get to 18? Do I have an 18 out there? 18. 17. 18. <laughs> 19. If we get to 25, lunch is free. 25? 20, 25? 20, <laughs> 25, lunch is 24. free. <laughs> Somebody here said, I got a big head. Number 26. <laughs> Riles going to text me and say, I got a big <laughs> Anything under 30 is just a biscuit and salad. A biscuit and salad. If we get to 30, we got fried chicken. i personal messages. This is hilarious. <laughs> I, I'm stopping counting. I'm at like 31, 32. Oh, 32, yeah. So the meal is Keep free now. Keep them coming. Look at this. Keep them coming. If we get to 35, then your soul is good. 35 All right. for Somebody's good soul. Somebody's calling me. You got to reject 35. it. Don't call me. Text me. Man, all right. 40 and Pastor Brad's offering penance. I know y'all don't do that here, but he's going to do it anyways. <laughs> penance at 40. Penance at 40. Man, they're coming in. I, I don't even know how many anymore. Man, I think I'm probably about like 43, I think. He's a Baptist. He should know you got to have some. Oh, wow. you know, <laughs> 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 <Where's> DJ? <laughs> so my, my own pastor, raise your hand. <laughs> my pastor's going to text me, joke, and say, I hate you. <laughs> Thanks, pastor. That's why he needs to host the next race one-to-one. -one. Come on. We got to clean yeah. that hate out, brother. Man, awesome, awesome. So I lost count, but I'm over 50 for sure. You know what I mean? I'm over 50 for sure. Give yourselves a round of applause. And so what we as a fixed staff, what we commit to doing is uh, prioritizing this and following up with each one of you and discussing what this looks like in your own context, right? So we believe that we're onto something powerful, uh, not just with faith and community in the well, but really for the health of this city as a whole. Amen? For the health of this city uh, as a whole. Uh, there's something else I was supposed to lift. Oh, so if you are interested in uh, sharing your thoughts on, the, on, the, on our two-day training, uh, Andrew File, where's Andrew at? 
Andrew, Andrew File created a quick Tumblr blog for us that you can actually uh, upload, submit a post around your comments around uh, uh, the impact that Friday and today have had on you. Um, and so we welcome responses from across the spectrum. You know, we just, we just ask that any response that's critical just remain respectful. But uh, if it's a critical response, please post that. If it's an encouraging uh, response, please uh, post that and uh, post it from a personal level, uh, however you're, you're led to do so. And so the, um, uh, the blog, uh, you get there, it's hopefresno.tumblr.com. So hopefresno.tumblr.com. And as you know, Tumblr is as T-U-M-B-L-R. So hopefresno.tumblr.com, okay? And there you can, um, you can, update, um, you can uh, update a post, submit a post, and let us know how you felt about the two-day training, okay? Um, I, I also want to say, um, going back to the race one-on-one and, um, and Bryson and I doing the role play, so... Um, we, had, I, we had Bryson share his story and me asking him to share a story and listening, in part to model what it looks like um, to really to try to listen and just hear the story out. Um, but I do want to emphasize, this, this may be obvious, but um, for our white allies in the room, um, you have a race story, we have a race story to tell as well. So this isn't about just, just asking um, a person of color to share their story and listening, although that's important. Um, it, it's not about... Uh, this is a mutual conversation. This is, we, we all have a story to tell. And I'll, I'll say from my own um, experience perspective, I've got, um, I've got some baggage that I'm working through and I've got um, some things that are holding me back um, that I'm, I'm really working on and wrestling with. And these conversations are about unpacking that and supporting one another. So just want to encourage us to really share from both sides and to really listen from both sides. All right. So can we do this as just one final act together, right? We're, we're going to break bread together, which is actually this amazing act of being in community. But given that we started in this pyramid, can we also do another act in which we don't sit facing one way and we see, we see each other? Is that we form a circle together as our close? So if we can just start to make a circle um, as part of the close, and then this will take us um, into lunch. And some folks have already done it, like, if you start, yeah, if you'll grab your neighbor's hand in the circle. Just want to make sure that everybody's in the circle. Okay. 
So we started off this morning Actually, let me share. Jen Bell, where are you? Just can I see your hand if you're here? Oh, there you are. Yeah. She walked up to me and, and was super gracious and said, thanks for being here. And she said, how do you land this helicopter? <laughs> and, and I said, you know, here's the hardest thing about venturing into the space of having conversations, authentic conversations about race, is that those the beginning of the conversation, you can't land it. We say all the time, I talk to my supervisor as we do this, um, talk all the time about we cannot and what we don't want to do is to put a pretty bow on this thing, right? Because that's not being authentic. But what we can do is create a symbol that starts to define Hope Fresno. Right? We started off this morning in a pyramid. In a, in a space that's, that by design favorites some and diminishes others. We're going to end in an amoebic circle. <laughs> But we're going to end in a configuration by design that seeks to offer up the fact that we can see each other. Do you remember the greeting I taught you? Sawubona. Can you just say to your neighbor, Sawubona? And then even say it, even though they might not be able to see you or hear you, say it to the people across the circle. Saubona. And then what's the response back? Sikona. If you see me, then I'm here. And there's a third part of the greeting that folks sometimes do that's called, and the word is this, Ubuntu. Can you say that? Ubuntu. And you know, the tra- there's actually not a literal translation for Ubuntu, but here's the feeling. I am because we are. And that, I think, is the symbol that we want to leave. Not to make this thing pretty, but to say, we leave this space knowing that there's work to do but understanding that there are people in this room whom we can do it with. So can you now say to your neighbor, Ubuntu? Say to the people across the circle, Ubuntu. And now take one more look at the people who are in this room, whose hands you are clutching, whom you're committing to doing something different because of what has happened this morning and last night. And may I offer this prayer to us as we dismiss to lunch, but also as we move more deeply into the journey 
to discover how race affects us all. This comes from my faith tradition out of the Hebrew scriptures. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. In your going out and your coming in. In your labor and in your leisure. Regardless, but more importantly, because of your race and ethnicity. May God now go with you and hold you. May God affirm you. May God convey to you that you are created in God's image full of dignity and love. And may you then share that dignity and love to those that you encounter. May we make that so today and tomorrow to the end of our days together. Amen. So now what we're going to do is just kind of, do you have instructions? Okay. What we're going to do is listen to Brad. Because he knows how to eat. Um, as we uh, get ready to close, can I invite anyone uh, who is clergy here to come up on stage with me just for a moment, uh, if you will? Um, as they're heading this way, I want to just make the, uh, the, the clear sort of point here that I think from a biblical tradition, we need to recognize that uh, clergy certainly have a role to play, but the role ought to be modeling and equipping and certainly not doing as everyone else watches. And so I'm inviting them up primarily because I want them to see the beautiful view, uh, but also I want to see if we as clergy can commit to being servant leaders in this process, to continuing to foster these kind of conversations within our various faith communities. Uh, even on stage, obviously, you see diversity represented here, and the diversity that's rep represented out there is beautiful. And uh, Pastor Villalobos, um, would you uh, honor us, uh, if you are okay with it, would you honor us in closing us in a word of prayer, but uh, in Espanol? Would that be okay? Thank you. Padre Celestial, muchas gracias por la oportunidad de ver este día. For the benefit of you who didn't understand what I said. Lord, thank you that you uh, allow us to see this day. Gracias porque está en tu corazón y es tu voluntad que seamos uno. Thank you because it's in your heart and it is your will that we become one. Lord, help us through our humanity. Ayúdanos a través de nuestra humanidad. Que tu Espíritu Santo nos dé el poder para vencer las barreras que nos separan. So through the work of your Spirit and power in our lives, we can overcome the barriers that separate us. Y que tu Espíritu Santo despierte en nosotros no solamente el amar, pero actuar en el amor. And then your Holy Spirit work in our hearts, not only to love, but to act in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. That's great. Thank you, sir. Um, I'm going to give you some directions here for now eating as we uh, begin to uh, leave this place. 
there's going to be tables over here. The tall gentleman there, Hale, will you wave your hand? He's going to start rolling tables out. What we're going to ask you to do is help uh, by spreading the tables out. We'll have to move some of the chairs. We'll just circle the tables, or the uh, chairs rather, around the tables. And then we'll open these doors and uh, commence to eating. We're going to eat buffet style, so help yourself. Food is catered to us today uh, via Chef Paul, who's got a place uh, down off of, I believe it's F Street. So if you, is that correct? So if you like what you're getting today and you'd like to swing by, please go visit Chef Paul. Tell him uh, that you were here at Hope Fresno because we're very grateful that he is here with us. Now, um, you know, I got saved in a Baptist church, and, and they used to tell us that you can't have a good meeting without some good eating, and so we're going to do just that. So we have, uh, we have, I think, some food that you're really going to enjoy. So that being said, if uh, gentlemen especially, uh, if we'll do some of the heavy lifting, get those tables coming out, and then uh, we'll uh, circle the tables up. And again, keep in the spirit of diversity. Let's keep the conversation going. Oh, and hey, one more thing before we leave, and since I have the mic, can we give just a quick round of applause to Date for his leadership? <laughs> to the people at Faith Community and for the panelists helping uh, provide this kind of conversation, we give them a hand as well. Appreciate you guys. Thank you.